0: You're listening to The Marketplace, a podcast that's meant to inspire other creatives to make meaningful strides in their own personal and professional life. My name is Priest Willis Senior, and I'm an entrepreneur, investor, author, and all-around inquisitive guy. I'm sitting down with other creators to talk about their process and lessons they've learned on getting the answers to the questions many of us are looking for. Let's get ready to roll. Hey, family. Welcome back to the Marketplace Podcast. I'm your illustrious host, Priest Willis, and today is episode number 200. Can you believe that? Number 200. And I am joined with my friend, Neil Sonny, somebody that I've been able to meet and talk with and build a relationship. Started on Twitter, and then, of course, we had countless conversations after. And he's just an amazing guy that I thought would have some very thoughtful information for you. Now, Neil has built and grown and created new ventures both within the world's largest brands and as an independent entrepreneur. Neal runs a growth and innovation consulting practice, which helps startups and Fortune 500 companies partner and invest in cross-industry technology and commercial opportunities. Now, Neal is the author of a book that we're going to discuss today called The Startup Goldmine, How to Tap into the Hidden Innovation Agendas of Large Companies to Fund and Grow Your Business. And we talk about the parallels between large and small businesses, both which I've been in and. As I just talked about, Neil has worked in himself, so I think there's something that anyone can get from this, from an innovation standpoint, something hopefully that's engaging for you that you can pull from and spark some ideas for something you may want to create outside. So without further ado, here is my man, Neil
1: Sonny. Hey, Neil, welcome to the program, man. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. its uh, I know we've talked a couple times, but this is, uh, is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, man, it really is. This
0: was one of the benefits of Twitter, right? Is that (laughs) for all the assholes that you have out there, you meet some really, really good people. You're one of them that you and I connected by Twitter. We've been chatting for a while. And then all of a sudden, you know, I don't know, because of COVID or something, we just kind of grew a little tighter and tighter in terms of our conversations. Plus, you like the Green Bay Packers, which made me like you.
1: I think I think that's how we met. I think it was something Packers related. Either you posted or I posted. Somebody retweeted, and one of, or one of us engaged with it. And I was like, I think that's a, the first reason I started following you. I'm like, you know, there's a lot of uh, sports fans on Twitter. It's like they're only into sports. Then I think I saw, you know, you posted the Packers thing, and then I saw you posted some some other like e-commerce related thing. And I'm like, all right, this guy's cool. I'm I'm gonna follow this guy. <laughs> and then, that was like probably a couple of years ago or something. I mean, it's been a yeah. while, yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's been a couple of
0: years. And by the way, when you and I have shared the e-commerce nuggets, it was before e-commerce got the legs that it has with the experts and gurus now, yeah, right? That's true. I mean, we were we were we were talking about it beforehand. We need that to be key. So look, before we get into all of our rambling and whatnots. Um, Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, Neil?
1: Yeah, so um, well, you probably already know my name is Neil Sony. I've uh, done a lot of work on the startup side of things, Uh, founded multiple companies uh, in actually multiple industries as well. So my first company, well, my first legal company, let's put it that way, was uh, in the in the (laughs) educational uh, in the education space. It was a marketplace for um, colleges and college students and uh, high school seniors to interact. So kind of flipping the college recruiting model on its head for where you didn't have uh, well, we were hoping to make it. So it wasn't college admissions officers pitching their school to uh, to high school students. It was more the, the students, the college students themselves uh, doing the selling and um, kind of like when you go onto a campus, the campus tour is usually given by a student. Our idea was to kind of take that same model, bring it online. Uh, so that was kind of my first foray into entrepreneurship. It, that was a, a great experience. You know, we had some people would call it an exit. I wouldn't. I wouldn't word it that way because nobody really made money. Uh, we had a, a that was at a Carnegie Mellon. That was when I was at CMU. Yeah, that was when. So I did that as a student. Um, and it had two co-founders. Uh, one actually who was a admissions officer at CMU. So that was uh that was fun. That's pretty convenient. It was great because, you know, we started that company. Actually, to be honest, that was a great learning experience in terms of how business models work because we had. Great success with the students themselves. So we had, uh, with you know, very little outside capital, just you know, three guys uh, kind of hustling. We got twenty five thousand high school students on the, on the platform. We had uh, major school systems wow. using it, uh, so Philadelphia Public Schools, DC Public Schools, and we had a little niche with like larger high schools that were not that well funded because they didn't have like you know the college admissions help in the school itself. Mm-hmm. That was like a little bit of a niche. They were looking for kind of a tool to help them. Where we, you know, I guess in hindsight, screwed up, right? Was not thinking about how to monetize or how to actually turn it into a business, and and I think as we'll get into that, greatly influenced kind of my thinking later on, um, because even though we had this big success with students, we assumed that if we had students on the platform, colleges would pay us, and. Anybody who knows anything about college admissions, which, you know, we should have thought about this before, the best schools don't really need help finding new students, right? They have a lot of people, like Harvard, everybody knows about Harvard, right? They have tons of people applying. They're not really having an issue with finding students. The schools that need help finding students are the like for-profit schools. And like the ones who are willing to pay didn't necessarily align with kind of what the mission was of of what we were doing. And so we ran into a lot of business model problems. What does that mean that they didn't align with the business that you were doing? Like, what? Well, so I'll give you I'll give you like one one very concrete example. There was a for profit uh, college that uh, we were talking to called um, EDMC, and I forget what it stands for, but uh, they run a bunch of different for profit schools, and I guess because of the way. Like the the uh, college loans work or grants work, they particularly were looking for like segments like uh, you know ex military, right? Like veterans. Uh, there were other mm. segments that they were looking for, and it just you know vaguely to me, and and this is not like a judgment. On anybody who works in that industry, I don't. You know, I only know it from this was eight years ago, but it's it it felt predatory, right? It felt like yeah. you know find us these people, we're going to pay you you know fifty to two hundred dollars a lead. Based on the quality, right, and like in for comparison, like the nonprofit colleges, like uh, I mean Carnegie Mellon is one, but like we were working with UPenn and Columbia and a few others. You know they would pay like ten cents a lead, right? Because they really don't need it. So I mean they still had like they still did buy leads, but uh they, they obviously the market for those schools is already so strong.
0: They didn't they didn't have to cap out with money to try to get them. I mean they would do it as part of their efforts, but they didn't go crazy. Whereas those other companies and the ones that I think of, this is why I asked you, what do you mean by it? Is because I think of, well, I probably shouldn't say the names, but I will, like Stratton College, when they were like, "Come on, what you doing on the couch with your dumbass? Get up, get your degree." Yep. And yep. ITT and all that stuff. So okay, yep. but, okay.
1: and i and I don't mean that to be like, no. oh, nobody gets no, benefit no, 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 from no, no. that. It's no. just a very different, and it's also to to me, it's a very different pitch than what we were giving the students, right? Like the students joining mm. the platform were not looking to go to those schools. And we were going to high school seniors. And, the, and honestly, it was like the the like perfect user for us uh, was the high achieving high school senior going to a large uh, city public school, right? And like right. kind of like somebody and, and the prep, I mean, it wasn't the premise behind what we were doing, but like we were definitely thinking colleges would be willing to pay to access that type of student. And what we found is like they don't have any issue reaching that type of student anyway. Right. But, but, and this, we can definitely get more into this later, but the, that whole experience really brought to me the, the importance of like building the business model into the, I mean, this sounds silly, but building the business model into the business from day one. Right. It's like we were thinking, all right, you get the users, the money will be there. Right. But that's not always the case. Um, As I mean, the internet is like, a graveyard of companies that that went in with that premise right and uh yeah That's right. and just if you can't get the business model I mean the, you need to get something that attracts the users but you definitely need to think about how you're going to make money down you know at some point
0: yeah i mean you could use i mean even people that think companies are huge and they are for all intents and purposes but twitter is trying to figure out constantly how to monetize yeah what they have out there and they have tons of users. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a good I mean, point. I'm just trying to give people a concept of, you know, how, just because you have this huge platform and these people on it don't, doesn't mean that the two are in one place and
1: voila, money just appears. I mean, there's <laughs> things yeah, that and it sounds happen. And it yeah. sounds easy to say like, cause the other thing we were thinking, we're like, oh, well, you know, I'm sure companies would want to advertise to these students. And like, yeah, we did mm. do, we did do some uh, like ad deals. We did some, like lead gen partnerships, we had a, a interesting lead gen deal with LinkedIn, uh, which in hindsight actually could have gone to more if we kind of doubled down on that part of it. LinkedIn was basically like, you know, they didn't want to get in the college recruiting game, but they wanted every like their goal was at least at that time every high school senior should make a LinkedIn profile at the same time that they make their first resume, right? And so um, they had like a little lead gen thing like where when they registered with our site. We allowed them to very easily create a LinkedIn profile through the API, and and then we get paid like per user. So that was, I mean, that was an interesting way to generate some revenue. But um, you know, there's also like an education piece. Like most high school seniors aren't thinking about LinkedIn, right? So the conversion on that, you know, on a per click basis, was it wasn't like we got some revenue, let's just say, right? But we didn't get it wasn't enough to make a company out of it, you know?
0: No, I think and look, you know, based on your LinkedIn. <clears throat> excuse me it shows that you started this in 2010 for all intents and purposes you know it was still relatively young in you know even for social internet times and what yeah, you were doing
1: point. that's a good point but uh yeah and 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 it did it did end up becoming something useful so we when I say we didn't exit we still got it got folded into the the gates foundation into something they were doing called the college oh, wow. knowledge challenge yeah so it still went somewhere like it's but we didn't you know I hesitate to call that an exit because it wasn't a, uh, you know, it wasn't like anybody paid us for that, right? It, like we we got to work with them for a few months and help them kind of integrate it. But yeah, it was they right around the time we were actually thinking of uh, shutting it down because we, you know, we couldn't get the business model working and and uh, I was graduating. One of my co-founders was also graduating and we were like, you know, we need to get a job or <laughs> we're going to need to pay bills soon, right? So we were kind of figuring out what's next and very kind of coincidentally at the around the same time the gates foundation put out like you know they put those like rfps or those uh requests for proposals yeah so they put out something that was uh basically to increase college access in kind of lower income big city schools right and it's like okay we've been working on this for two years already right so uh yeah, it just kinda of matched really nicely. So it was uh So
0: Gates Foundation, for those listening, this is uh Bill Gates, his wife's Yep, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Yep. Yep. And um so they'll use that as part of their stepping stone when they take over the world with the vaccines and <laughs> stuff. <They're- laughs>
1: yeah, that'll be the next uh <laughs> the next step. Then you get to uh yep. to- they're gonna
0: use that. Yeah. So next next you move on, Neil, you go to Estate de Lauder.
1: Yeah, there were a couple things between that. I worked, so I led growth at a, uh, so I, well, actually first I just joined the the company as a as one of the, the first employees, but a company called momtrusted.com. and ended up leading growth there and the company is still around, uh, still profitable. It's one of those, you know, one of those companies, I'm sure you've encountered some uh, yourself, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, you don't get the big headline exit, but you built a, mm-hmm. a business. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those, like, you know, I still have my equity, I still have... Uh, I was able to, so when I joined the company, had effectively zero revenue, maybe like a hundred, 200 bucks a month. And we got it up to like 40, 50 K pretty you know, pretty rapidly. Wow. I'd say within like 12, 12 months, I think after that, after wow. I joined, we were up there. Yeah. So I, that was for me, like, I think a really transformational experience, right? Cause it was not my own company. So I kind of got to learn in a lot of ways from my boss there, uh, Chaz Giles is, still, you know, my closest mentor Um, and he's, he's off doing amazing things now, but even at mom trusted, right. I got to, I got to sit next to him for, you know, one and a half, two years and just learn, you know, and having been a founder before and making a lot of mistakes myself, I got to see like, okay, here's somebody who's not making those mistakes. Right. And doing it a little bit differently. And of course he was making his own, you know, different mistakes, right. As he'll, as he'll tell you himself, but it was a great kind of like Kind of like apprenticeship is how I think about it uh, hmm. for those couple of years. So yeah, and then from there, I, I started doing some consulting but work. Yeah. Like, it looks like an Angie's List almost. Was that yeah, sort of- kind of, kind of yeah. So it's a it's like a lead gen marketplace essentially for uh, daycare, childcare, preschool. Got it. And we did some other stuff too, like summer camps and some other related like uh, types of products. So some CPG companies like uh, Kimberly Clark and Procter and Gamble they have some paid like ad placements on the on the platform as well, but. Yeah. It was, I mean, that's basically, it's uh, the easy way to understand It's the lead gen marketplace, the, the preschools, daycares, they buy the leads. The big sort of differentiator is we, that industry, the standard for a lead is very weak, right? So you go to a website, you put in your zip code, you're like, oh, I have a two-year-old, I'm looking for daycare. Right. And they'll blast that lead to like, you know, 50 places. So the cost per lead typically like the, is pretty low because the, there's not much buying intention right behind that lead. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you know, car insurance or moving, right? Like you, you, any of these lead gen sites. The big differentiator we had is you have to opt in to the school, right? So you go to the school's profile, you opt in, and then you fill out your info, and then you just get info for that school. We do have ways we try to like upsell you, right? So we'll say, you, you know, you, you, let's say you took a tour at a school you obviously didn't enroll because you're back on our site. We'll say, oh, do you want like us to help you? find a school, right? So we have like a concierge service. Yeah. So there's, there's different ways we, you know, we try to increase the number of leads through that, but the big differentiator for parents or like, you know, who are looking for the schools is that they, um, they're not going to get spammed with like 50 schools that they're not interested in. It's, it's only the ones you specifically opt in for. And then the schools like it too, because the, uh, you know, the leads actually mean something. The mm. conversion rate is way higher. So, um, yeah, I mean, and the, the, uh, I'm sure, you know, I know you have, you have kids, so, you probably have seen some of these, you know, the costs on the preschool and daycare, but it's, it's oh, astronomical. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. It's so, crazy. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the cost per leads is solid. Like it was, uh, this is several years back, but it was like 200 bucks a lead. So it's, uh, I mean, you can build a real business off the back of that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then I thought the Estee Lauder one was pretty impressive because we've had a mentor dial on You may or may not be familiar with him, but he kind of ran the international portion or, the European portion of that business. So they're oh they're wow. pretty big.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're a big they're a big company. So yeah. So and that kind of is a is like an interesting segue. Cause I so after mom trusted, um we kind of so just to wrap that up, we like didn't we we had a chance to raise like an A round. The founders were looking at the market and we're like, you know, I'm sure you've seen this too. If you raise, you know, you raise money you go on a clock. Right. Mm-hmm. And and you gotta mm-hmm. you gotta kinda exit or you know, go IPO or figure out, you know, what's, how are you going to get the investors the money back? And we looked at the market and it was just like, we, we didn't, that wasn't in the cards. It seemed like, right. Like you could take, you could probably get the money off of what we had built, but then to kind of like achieve what you had to achieve to make that worth it. Uh, we were not too confident. And so that's how the business, the business now has one employee and is running and it's profitable and like, so that that's kind of the decision they made. But as the head of growth, that means you have to go figure out, okay, well, what am I gonna go do next? Cause we're not really growing, right? We're not yeah. investing in that growth, right? So, so I actually started a growth consulting business at that time through kind of like a s- series of like left turns I would say, right? Like kind of right place, right time. I got to work with Estee Lauder and that's kind of, that's what I ended up doing full time actually after a little bit, it was part time for a little while and then it was full time for almost three years.
0: Before you, Neil, before you get into uh, what you did at Estee Lauder or your your time at Estee Lauder, you know, we've, uh, there's a lot of positions pop, popping up, especially now in the past couple of years that I've seen for director of growth. And partly it could be a very broad term. I don't even know if some companies know what they're asking for when they're looking mm-hmm. for this growth person. Can you explain to the audience um, just based on your knowledge from consulting and your previous experience with uh, Trust Moms, you know, what it actually means or moms trusted, yeah, what, yeah. what does the what does the term of growth, particularly when you're working <laughs> with an online business, what does that very broad term
1: mean? That's a, a great question. Yeah. So, because um, you're right, a lot of companies, I think, post that role, but don't actually fully realize yep. what they're looking for. And I Yep. I think it is different. It, it is different by business. So in Mom Trusteds case, it, in Mom Trusteds case, the the market it's a marketplace, right? So you have supply and demand. So you have um, demand was the was the moms or the parents who are looking for childcare, and supply was the, the the daycare centers and preschools. And in the case of that business, growing is actually very tricky because it doesn't matter if I bring on daycares and preschools in California if all my parents are in New York, right? It doesn't help. And it gets even more granular than that, right? Like in New York, it doesn't matter if they're, you know, all my centers are in Queens if uh, all my parents are in Manhattan, right? And they don't want to go to Queens. So it's like very regional, region specific. And then it's very, um, it, you have to match it up. You know, you have to make sure there's openings at the schools you're bringing onto the platform and stuff. And so in Mom Trusted's case, the director of growth role was uh, largely to increase whichever side, uh, I mean, ideally both sides, right? And and together but kind of make sure that A, both of those were matching up and then B, grow them, right? And there's different things that go along with that. So selling, uh, so sorry, bringing on uh, preschools and daycares to the platform was pretty much typical sales, right? It was contacting them through various means, whether email, phone, yeah, different, I mean, whatever method works to get, we did some physical mail even to get in front of some of them. And, uh, you know, it's just whatever by any means necessary, right, to get to get in front of them and, and sell them on on the value of the platform. And then on the parent side, it's more sort of typical Internet marketing. It would be, you know, some SEO work, some SEM, some social media ads, social media posts. Also, Mom Trust has a blog that's fairly popular in like the mom community that, you know, gets shared quite a bit. And we were doing some stuff on Pinterest. Right. So it's more like sort of typical Internet marketing to drive traffic because on mm-hmm. the mom side they're not really spending on spending money on the platform they're kind of filling out right like those lead gen forms so that's basically you know kind of the two sides to the growth role in in that business i think at other companies, it just kind of depends on what the company does right if you're on e-commerce it's probably all tied to like how much you can grow sales and revenue and then you know of course there's other metrics ahead and behind that like profit and and traffic and and all that but uh, and cost of acquisition but yeah, these are all kind of like the different pieces to it. And in Mom Trusted's business, being a marketplace, there were kind of two sides to that growth. Other businesses, it might, you know, a SaaS business, it might be more uh, straightforward, but in a marketplace, you kind of, you have to match up the the supply and demand and that makes the the growth role um, pretty interesting, but also a little, you know, a little, maybe a little more challenging from, from that perspective. Mm-hmm. There's more variables. Yeah.
0: So in particular, uh, so you go to Estee Lauder, you spend a couple years there, year and or two years and two and a half years, and then you start moving along, and you are today a mentor with Alpha Lab. You've written your book, which I really want to dig into a little bit. And what where are you at today? Mainly, it looks like consulting is your main thing. I know this, but I have to play it off for the audience. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> but, um, so what, what, what do you have going on today? Where, where's that yeah, so, today?
1: Yeah, so today, um uh, I, I, and we can definitely dive into the, the book and, and, yep. the Estee Lauder experience, but I, I definitely, you know, I do a bunch of consulting. Um, I have three enterprise clients right now and all in different industries. Um, and with them, so with enterprise clients, I kind of help them with, I call it innovation ecosystems. There's Everybody's got different words for it. But basically, it's the idea that you you know innovation can kind of come from anywhere outside of the organization or inside of the organization. And so it's, one, it's surfacing like what the different parts of your company need. And as you know, in like large companies, one department doesn't necessarily know what the other departments need. So it's <laughs> kind of creating that map of, of, and typically, it's with technology. So I should be clear, you know, kind of specific on that. For sure. It's like technology needs that are in the company and then also building an ecosystem outside of the company, whether that's with investors, with startups, with universities, but with all sorts of different entities outside that can, you know, even just individuals. Honestly, there's a lot of, uh, you know, you can, there's a ton of sites that do this, that look at this now, but like individual makers, there's all these people that just like build, you know, stuff, cool stuff online. And just make you know, just making your the needs of the organization more available outside of the company, so that mm-hmm. they can you know people can submit solutions, people can help solve your problems. Because the idea of kind of innovating in a silo, it does happen. I don't want to say it's you know impossible, but it's sure. uh, it makes things more difficult. And you know who knows? Like the best solution might be outside of the organization. So why not uh, kind of create a path for people to do that? So with large companies, that's a lot of what I end up uh, doing, and. It's at various levels like with some companies, uh, like one of my clients, it's almost like a coaching role. they were already actually doing this they just needed help doing it maybe a little bit more effectively or uh, tweaking some things. so that mm. one's almost like a coach with another company, it's more like building it from scratch like they haven't done this before they want to do it, but they need help getting started and then and then building it and operating it. They have people internally that you know can kind of definitely run this or be a part of it, but they they haven't done it before so It's really kind of setting up the structures, walking them through how to do it, and yeah. So it just depends kind of on what they need. And then on the other side, I do. I still work with startups, and typically in uh, like growth-related advisory roles. So you know, with startups, I'm pretty selective with who I work with because typically I'm doing those on equity, right? So Mm. uh, I kind of try to view it almost like an investor of you know where am I investing my time? So I don't you know I don't work with every kind of company I come across, but do you go
0: into these businesses when you take them on with equity in mind, or are you looking for straight up payments and salaries and such?
1: Uh, and this is with the
0: large companies or with startups? With startups, primarily, obviously, large ones.
1: Yeah, with the large ones, I mean, yeah, they with those, it's typically just a you know standard fee for service uh, yep. with the large companies. But um, with startups, you know, I was when I first kind of got into doing this, I was going into it with the idea of, of charging and, and I have charged. What I've found is that's kind of, I'm, and this is a maybe more philosophical question. I'm not the biggest fan of the hourly billing model to begin with. Mm-hmm. Large companies, it tends to be what they're used to and what they want to do. And I've you know, pushed back on that a few times. It's just, honestly just not worth arguing about with them, yeah. uh, because they just have their standard procedures, right? And so the hourly billing model is what they're used to. That That's how they pay other consultants. And, you know, you don't want to kind of have to build that new thing from scratch with a large company. But with a startup, I found that it aligns everybody's incentives uh, a lot better if it's equity or it's like success-based. And yeah. If it's not equity, I've done things where there's like a small flat fee for that for you know for my time basically, and then the larger part of the compensation based on success, which could be in certain cases based on revenue, uh, profit. It could be based on other things, uh, but equity is kind of a nice, clean way to do it because it's the idea is that uh, you know if I help them unlock or solve major problems uh, on the growth or sales side. That uh, I guess I deserve a piece of uh, of the business for that. So yeah, i
0: I agree with yeah. that. I mean, me personally, so I'm kicking myself today because several years ago, I started with a dot com business very, very early on, like employee or, you know, consultant number three, essentially. and this this dot com has grown up pretty substantially. and I went in purely, getting money for it versus looking at equity. And I told myself, and I'm not necessarily a traditional consultant in the way that you are. I mean, I'll, I'll be willing to help. I do some stuff on clarity, which is a website where you can. Yep. Have calls. Clarity's and, great. Yeah. Clarity is great. I had a clarity call today and I'm, I'm willing to do that, but, but I, I don't think I'll ever go back into um a business again without, or startup, let's say startup again. Uh, without purely looking at some equity play versus just you know pay me x amount of dollars. Now that's easier said than done. I could see how maybe someone even younger, and this isn't being judgmental, but I could see how you're going in for the money because you need what you need at the time you need it.
1: No, and that's a good and that's a good point. Like that's the other thing is there's uh that's such an individual you know question because it's mm. um I mean I I as a general rule I just like you I'm kind of at the point where. I prefer equity, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, that's where a lot of the upside is. Mm -hmm. And I have a mentor who kind of drilled that into my head because Mm -hmm. he's had some instances where he didn't kind of similar, sounds very similar to the Mm -hmm. example you just described, right? Where he took a cash and, and now he's kicking himself. And, (laughs) um, so, you know, I try to just always like, think about it from that perspective and the, um. You know, but on the other hand, right, it's like very easy to say that when I also have three enterprise clients, you know, if I had zero enterprise clients and zero sort of revenue coming in from that perspective Good point, uh, it, it would be much harder to then say, okay, no, I'm going to work on equity. Yeah. You know, it's, it's very easy when you got some, some, some cash coming in from other sources. So, uh, yeah, but like you, I, all else being equal, I like optimizing for upside. Uh, and I think that's fair for the other, the other party as well, for the company who's hiring you because. You know, it's like, um, if if the company doesn't succeed, you don't deserve anything either because you weren't able to, you know, like if, you, if they have to pay you cash, then you get paid regardless of if the company is successful or not. Yeah. And in equity, it's like, well, okay, if it's not successful, then uh, you don't get anything either. And if it is <laughs> successful, well, yeah, you, I might have to give you more because now it's successful. But ideally you were a big part of that success. So yeah, and uh, I, you deserve
0: that. I would just say that to, you know, the people listening, uh, you know, this is, you know, for me and Neil, this is just how we would approach it. But, you know, and I kind of look back on myself, but then again, I kind of look back and think to myself, well, I could have used the money too. So you do what's best for you. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, also find what you're, what you think you can offer the world to even get started versus just kind of, you know, throwing yourself out
1: there to the wolves not really having a plan clarity is great actually i'm glad you brought that up clarity is a great way to get started i think that was one of the that or something like it was one of the first kind of my when i dipped my toes into consulting that was kind of one of the first things because you do realize like after a couple of those calls you're like oh i'm actually providing value to these people right you know who are booking something and yeah. And you feel that, you know? Yeah, totally. Uh, I'm I mean, sure I'm sure you have that feeling as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I
0: I, re, I had an older accountant and I just recently restarted it. Clarity, and I I got a phone call on it today. Clarity is amazing because if you do want to get into consulting, again, depending on where you're at and what, what, what it is that you ultimately want to do, Clarity is just like you said, a good place to, you know, people are typically asking 15, 20 minutes, these micro minutes for your time. And you, you'll be surprised how much, you know, and how much you could provide in such a short period. Now, all my, all my clarity um, funds go to uh you can set it up for donations. So I, yep. I have it all for donation base, but you know, you, that's could, awesome. You could earn money from clarity um, to put in your, your bank account. So um, yeah, that's a really good opportunity.
1: Yeah. And I guess, and uh, going back to that equity versus cash question, like, you know, if I really objectively look back, there are startups that I did equity deals with that were in hindsight, like a complete waste of time, right? Because they didn't pan out and that's the other side. That's true. Yeah. So then you think back, you're like, well, maybe I should have done cash. Right. And it's like, but it's very easy to look at these things in hindsight because let's say one of them works out, then it's going to be like, well, okay, I should have done all of them in equity because right. Then, then, then they would have all been like that. But, uh, It's much easier in hindsight than (laughs) like hindsight's 2020, as they say. Totally.
0: So, Neil, let's get into this book a little bit. So I've had the opportunity to read it. Thank you again for sending me a copy. I thought it was a great book. I mean, again, for somebody that I met on Twitter, kind of based around sports and then e-commerce to eventually finding out you're an author and, and you and I being on videos and having so much that we clicked with in terms of. You know, maybe our philosophies around business and just generally good conversation. This book was just another added value for me from you of just a lot of richness. I mean, I'm into this stuff. So if you don't geek out in this kind of stuff, I can understand why you're like, okay, another startup book. But this isn't that. This isn't <laughs> a, just another startup book. Where Neil is beginning to hit on is how big corporations and startups and the people, within those mindsets, play with each other in that world. And that to me is very separate from what we've heard, even maybe people that we've had on the podcast in the past. So Neil, why was it important that you wrote, write this book, the startup goldmine?
1: Well, so first and foremost, I wrote it to, um, I wrote the book that I wish I had when I was working on my first company. Mm because i think i mentioned a, a little bit earlier in the conversation the linkedin example mm. that was actually a, uh, in hindsight could have been a much deeper richer partnership had i realized why they wanted to mm. work with us right so kind of taking a step back in that situation they weren't working with us because of like the 5 leads that we could generate for <laughs> for a site <laughs> like linkedin <laughs> every week or right. something right like that's not that interesting what they were looking at it is they were interested in seeing how cuz they did a great job with college graduates right like every college graduate was making a linkedin account they still you know this that's still kind of like the thing you're supposed to do right if you're going into the workforce they were looking at how did they expand to new markets and and high school seniors was like a really interesting one to them and that's that we had a, a mentor uh, through Alpha Lab actually which is the accelerator we were mm-hmm. in who had previously sold a company to linkedin so the intro he had done was to their like innovation and corp dev. So the corp dev is usually the the mergers and acquisitions group. So they'll they'll buy companies. I didn't know that at the time. I had no idea what what the hell corp dev means. I just thought it's like business development, right? So I was thinking I, I just went into it with a very product focused mindset of like, oh, we can yeah, we can get you a few leads like through using your API. And like I just didn't think about it from a from their perspective, right? I had no sense of why would they want to work with a little, you know, three-person startup uh, <laughs> at their size? Like, in hindsight, it's kind of obvious, right? But um, it would have been so helpful to have a book that kind of dives into the mindset of a, of, a, of someone working at a large mm-hmm. company, but then also the incentives and and uh, why they need startups, why they can't just do everything internally themselves. Uh, because I don't know about if if everybody else feels this way. I know before I had the chance to work inside of a large company. I kind of like, not idolize is not the right word, but I had this like mythological image of like these large companies and how effective they were. And and it was, honestly, you were always like, I was at least always scared of like a large company coming in and doing what I was doing on, on the startup mm-hmm. side. And until I, I was inside one of those large companies, so at Estee Lauder and uh, kind of working on the ground there for for multiple years, I didn't realize that they can't do what I do right as on the startup side. There's and there's reasons for In that. In terms of being nimble. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and that there's actually it's much easier for them to just collaborate with you whether that means partnering, buying your product, reselling it or just buying your company, right? There's there's easier ways for them to do it than to try to copy you. And and just yeah, that's kind of going back to your question. That's the was kind of the real motivation is like if I could have really benefited from that book When I was starting my first company, there's probably others who are probably in the same, you know, in the same situation. Yeah,
0: 2001, I started with a company called AtomicPark.com right after I left Children's Hospital, which was a software. At that time, you would have to order disks, software disks, have it sent to you. And, you know, we had partnerships with Microsoft, Adobe and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, so that was a smaller company. And first of all, you, you have no idea. That when you're working for a smaller company, as you pointed out, you have this very big magical thought of big companies. But once you get inside, you realize some of the bureaucracy and other things that they begin to deal with. I mean, even signing off on simple contracts can sometimes be more than an ocean. And it, it it's smaller <laughs> companies yeah. that begin to come in. And understand that whereas smaller companies deal with maybe lack of capital and other different things that, um, you know, can hinder them. So the ability to be able to connect with one another and leverage one another is key. That's why, you know, that's again why I thought this book was so vital, because it does list the insights and pros and cons. And you're just the person from a small perspective. Or small business perspective to working with larger organizations to have a real look at some of those challenges that are being dealt with on the outside, and you know we all know today that I work with the large company, and you know all of that stuff that we talked about is is there um, in terms of the challenges within larger corporations. So, um, yep, you know yep. before we start getting into the details of the book in general. What has been the feedback from um, particularly large companies? Do you hear back from them? Because I think, I think I joined one of your sessions. You were doing a talk with another group, and I told you, I said, hey, man, yeah, I, yep. I just wanted to hear from a large organization, you know, kind of the thought process around the smaller ones. That's even before I, I started reading the book. Have you heard it from people from large organizations, or has it largely been small business
1: folks? No that's the surprising thing so I um when I wrote the book and and now that having read it you you'll see exactly what I'm talking about it's very clearly addressed to startups yep. right or to people on the the smaller company side yeah it's been surprising to me that uh, I would I would guess it's probably one third of the readers mm-hmm. have been uh, people from the large company mm-hmm. side and maybe that's because and and I guess what I've heard anecdotally is uh, they want to understand like how startups are seeing them. Yep. Right and where they can improve their process and how they can make it easier to work together because you'd be surprised as on the startup side well you you in particular might not be surprised but someone <laughs> listening might be surprised uh, as a startup you feel like oh it's so hard to get in front of the right person and and uh, and sell to a large company and on the flip side the people in the large companies a lot of times feel like it's hard to work with startups and for the opposite reasons right it might be that. Um, you know, they they might feel like, oh, we move too slow. The startup's going to move on. They're always worried that the startup, especially if it's something in like a competitive industry, they're worried that one of their competitors will buy it, right, or sign an exclusive with them. Um, so there is like a lot of there's a lot of issues on the large company side too. That that if you're on purely from a startup uh, background, you might not realize that uh, large companies are worried about. So I find about a third of the readers have been maybe yeah somewhere around probably a third uh, have been folks from large companies and, and uh, yeah, I'll get, I'll get messages from, from them uh, fairly often. And it, for some reason, I'm always surprised. I'm like, Oh, it's cool that you're reading my book. Yeah.
0: It's, it's impressive. I mean, especially again, you know, from somebody from a large organization, but has history with small businesses and startups in general. Um, it, it does provide very valuable insights for both sides. So, you know, there's nobody out there that shouldn't be able to read this book and say, ah, oh, this doesn't relate to me. It really would. So if you're from a startup to you're working with a large organization, it's important that you do. In fact, um, you know, working at Lenovo, I remember one time my SVP told us, you know, at the end of the day, we work for an organization that is Chinese based, right? So it's important that you learn the culture of, you know, the mm, Chinese yeah. people and et cetera. And I say that to say whether you're working for a small business or a large business, it's important that you learn the uh, culture of those different businesses. Cause at some point you will
1: intersect or at some level. Now you got into, that's a great, that's a great point. That's a great, and you know, the, the chapter in there that talks about how uh, people are rewarded and punished in large companies that's one in particular I've found from enterprise folks, people mm. who have who are working currently for large companies really resonates with them because I guess, you know, it's not maybe other people have written it similarly. But the feedback I hear is that they're like, oh, this is how it works. But I just haven't seen it written like this. So, cl- you know, this clearly of, of kind of how we were, were rewarded and punished and. And maybe like why are especially people who are in like leadership type roles. They'll look at that and, and, and say, like, OK, how can we adjust our incentives to, to kind of allow our you know workers, our employees to maybe take not just more risks, but uh, to experiment more? Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. you even it, in the first chapter, you even lead
0: into. Um, I believe you call the innovation theater or something along those lines, which was. Yeah.
1: Yep. And I didn't make that up. That's uh, that comes from Steve Blank, I think, is the guy who coined that uh, term. I never
0: heard that before. And I was like, damn, this is so spot on, you know, in terms of, you know, a business is there to do large organizations, that is, to do one thing. And, you know, whether it's to sell widget A to customers, but yet there's always, there always feels like this bird in the hat, watch my hand, like the theater that you're pointing out or you and Steve Blake, whoever, um, I'm going to say you for now, yep. you're on my, you're on my podcast, <laughs> you get the credit. but it is so true that, you know, in large organizations, I believe that people are afraid to fail. Yeah. You know, there yeah. is very little room yet. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors in terms of innovation. I believe, you know, large companies miss the boat for that reason. And that's what leaves open space for small businesses because, Mm -hmm. you know,
1: they just do what works spot on. Yeah.
0: Go ahead. If you want to let on
1: on that a little, no, no, you're spot on. I mean, you're spot on on that. It's the, um, yeah, the innovation theater thing is, is interesting. And I, and I guess like just to preface all this, none of this, like fear of failure, fear of experimentation uh, in the book, it's pretty clear, but I'll just reiterate it here it's not the employee's fault, totally. right? It's not like, totally. it's it's not like a personality flaw. I mean, this is something I've heard from from folks say like, you know, oh, it's, uh, and it's this systemic. is a misconception. It's, it's like, systemic, oh, very, it's, not, it's, systemic. Yeah. it's a systemic totally. issue, yep. Yeah, it's because of how you're compensated and it's because of how, uh, like, and just to put it very clearly, if you, let's say you take a bet on a small company and uh, for a major marketing launch or something, and it goes really well and, you know, you're, everyone's really happy with you you know, maybe you'll get a promotion, but more likely you'll just get like a bonus or a pat on the back or something. And if it doesn't go well, well, you might lose your job, right? So, so there's a a huge imbalance in terms of the incentives. It's like best case, I might make an extra, you know, thousand bucks, 2000 bucks or something as a bonus. Worst case, I'm going to be unemployed. Like, you know, who's going to take a risk in that scenario? No, no logical person no human is going to want to take a risk in that scenario. And I, I'm sure. Yeah, go ahead. You know, I've heard that Google
0: offers 20% of Googlers time to create into, you know, that's where a lot of their Google meet and different tools come out of is sometimes they. Yep. Gmail. G- I heard. Yeah, came out yes. Of that. I've heard Gmail was one of the ones that came out of just people getting uh, putts around. Do you think in corporations in particular that. You know, as we look at a 40-hour work week and people are starting to dive in, what does this really mean about remote working? Do you think all corporations should look at adapting time for people to fail in their own silo? Or how, how do you really get beyond some of that and get people to be more creative? Because you could even argue that during an yeah. eight-hour day, people are really just working like five hours. And the rest of it, totally effing yeah. off. Yeah. I mean...
1: <laughs> yeah, I believe Give them that. something yeah.
0: fun to do or or something fun that could contribute to
1: the in, true innovation of the business. I mean, what's your thoughts around that? Yeah. So um I I'm a big fan of this like bottom I call it like bottom up innovation, right? So it's like coming from, you know, whether I mean it could come from anywhere. It could come from a cashier if you're, you know, a retail business or like I, I'm a big fan of that. Um, uh, simply because every employee has their own perspective on the business, their own interactions with your customers. Um mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I'm a huge fan of that. I think the particular structure might be different based on the company. I know. Um, so I, uh, I one of my first work experiences, I was an intern at Booz Allen, and actually, they had something there. I remember this is like eleven years ago, maybe twelve years ago now. Uh, they had a program even back then, which I don't know what they called it, but it was the ability for any employee to like submit an an, an idea and like a business plan. And then they had this committee that judged it. And if you won, uh, you, that was your job to go work on that for the next oh, year. Wow. So you got, you know, you could, yeah. So you kind of could create your own job basically. Right. And I mean, I'm not saying that's like the best model for right. everybody, but I'm just saying there's like different models to kind of surface all these cool ideas that your employees might have. Yeah. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of that. Even at Estee Lauder, actually uh, one of the coolest projects I worked on was, uh, was kind of started that way. So it was, it was this chemist in the R and D department, you know, not like entry level, but not not like anybody who's he's not managing anybody, right? At that point, he had this idea. I guess on the side, he was uh, he owned like a three D printer, and this is like at home, right? And so he's playing around with it, and he had this idea of like, well, why does only plastic go through the three D printer? Why couldn't uh, Why couldn't you do other things like makeup or other things like mm. that and create these cool shapes? And so he was experimenting on his own time came up with this idea of modifying a 3D printer so it could 3D print lipstick in different mm. shapes instead of just kind of like that one standard shape. And uh yeah, I mean one thing kind of led to another and the brand at Estée Lauder that ended up launching that was a brand called Smashbox. Oh wow. And it's it's a pretty large beauty brand. Yeah, and it, it actually went to market, but it was purely I mean I'm I'm glossing over some parts of the story Literally. like he had to fight tooth and nail with he had to fight, yeah. He had to fight tooth and nail with his boss to get permission to even work on it. But I mean, there wasn't like in Estee Lauder's case at that time, there wasn't an easy structure to kind of get that to market. But kind of once his boss surfaced it and, and there were a couple other people who really got behind it, it ended up getting launched with a brand, not for commercial use necessarily, but more for working with influencers. So like it was a way to differentiate their brand versus, you know, all the other hundreds of, of lipsticks out there with influencers, they could approach an influencer and say, hey, we could make a lipstick and make it look like you, right? Like that's kind of cool for a video, right? For like a YouTube video or an Instagram post and influencers wanted to work with them. And, and they, I, at least at that time, when I was still in the company, they were getting some pretty high profile influencers to do it for free just because it was cool. Yeah. Cause it was like a new thing. It couldn't get it anywhere else. So, I mean, there's like that. That's just another example. But it, it I, I totally agree with your premise that companies increasingly especially with as you're talking about remote work and stuff should incentivize and create easy ways for for companies to or sorry for employees to uh to invent stuff because as i mean even the google example you brought up like i mean gmail and other things like these are major major products for google like this is not like yeah it's not like just some little side product i'm sure there's a bunch that never went anywhere right but even if you get one of these things from your employees that's I mean that's super well, that, valuable. that's
0: just it, right? Is that you're you're allowing this sandbox for yourself to sort of fail? I mean, yeah, there's probably a million yep. things that didn't come out of that, but one is one is what you need, and and yep. you know that's kind of how I think large organizations need to look at it. Like, yeah, there's probably tons of bones in the graveyard that'll happen as a result of people trying and attempting, but I guarantee you're going to get a different level of production and insight and focus into your organization and how it connects. If you kind of look past the thing that we're doing that we've always done type of attitude, you, you could potentially change the culture of your business in some ways.
1: So, and sometimes it does. And sometimes it's better if it comes from like a lower uh, level or more entry level employee, totally. right? Because they're in a lot of businesses, they're the ones actually interacting with customers. So maybe they have a sense of what the uh, the customer wants that, you know, someone who's like the head of innovation or CEO, right? Or CMO, like they would just never kind of connect with the, the customer in that same way. So uh, yeah, I, I'm a I mean, you may learn stuff, even even if it doesn't turn into a product. You may just learn stuff about your customers that informs other things, you know, later on. And yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of that structure. I I hope more and more companies do it. I think the the fear that co- that companies have is, um, well, one, you know, anything new is is always a little frightening from that perspective. But they think it'll distract from like the day to day mission. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe I don't know if that's the case or not. I mean, I've found in my, like my own sort of personal experience, I found that to be more motivating for employees like they want they get more excited about their job if they have the you know kind of ability to experiment. I like think that. so.
0: I mean, look, I, I lead a team and either you have adults or you don't. So, you know, at some level, you yeah, have to learn how to trust point. your the people that you hire. Yeah, it's a great point. So I should begin to turn the conversation around and say, maybe you don't trust yourself because you don't know who you're hiring. Maybe you're not the leader you thought you were. So the minute you start questioning your employees, you should leave yourself open for some of those same discussions. (laughs) That's a great point. At any level, right? Whether you're in small business, whether you're in a large organization, it's like, you know, I want you guys here nine to five. No, I don't want you focusing on that because, you know, we have this. And it's like, well, Bob, you know, maybe you need to look at yourself too. Because if you don't trust us to be the people to, to carry that through and that we're we're smart enough. We're happy enough to try to work on some other stuff. Maybe you, you just aren't the leader you thought you were and hired right people.
1: It's kind of like if they block like, you know, social media on your work computer or like block <laughs> yeah. YouTube or something, right? It's like, so you don't trust me to, you know, not go on YouTube or like not waste, not waste my time. And, but yet you're, you're hiring me for a job. That's, uh, yeah. That's and odd, you're, looking, right? you're looking
0: for the best, yeah. and you you think I'm just dumb enough to get lost in a rabbit hole at work uh, of Facebook all day, <laughs> and that you know what that may be possible, but how I mean honestly, how likely is it? We're adults, right? And I so yeah, that that yep. stuff. Yep. I mean, if you talk to people that report to me at any level, they'll tell you like I I totally let them go for it, but I also believe that you know in the end we got to get this win, right? But you know whatever it is you're gonna do, manage manage it how you're going to do it, then let's talk about it. I believe that's the way you lead people. You treat them like people, right? So, you know, one yeah, of the things 100%. you have in your book is about, I, you know, I really like this because I like the concept of networking. I name my business Networking Capital LLC because I believe the, the capital that people earn is in the connections that they build with people. And you have a chapter where you're talking about uh, getting the deal done essentially where you're how the uh, corporations communicate with one another or or how a small business communicates with the corporation right you know what yep. do you think is vital in that interaction in terms of if i'm a small business and i'm wanting to get the attention of a larger business what is it that i need to do because i'm telling you you know for somebody that works at a large business I'm hit constantly with the most cheesiest emails. I mean, not even sales—they're <laughs> just telling me yep. just stuff. Um, but how do you get your message across? How do you start to engage with large organizations and bring a message that matters?
1: Oh man, this is a whole this is a whole podcast in itself. But uh, <laughs> yeah, man, there's uh, there's there, there's a lot to unpack. There. I mean, number one, the thing you just brought up that you're hit all day, I think for a small business, that's very important to understand. Mm-hmm. Like the, um, if you're in a small business to make something, and this is like, a, I, guess, I guess maybe this is an important distinction to make. If you're in a small business to make something happen, you kind of have to go make it happen, totally. right? Like stuff is not necessarily coming inbound to you all day. In a large business, it's the opposite problem. Typically it's you're hit with stuff all day and you got to triage that to like figure out what's important and what's not and that's kind of a big fundamental difference and it's hard to break through that noise. So number 1, I think you have to and people take different approaches on this. Some people take like kind of that spray and pray <laughs> approach, right? And just go for as many contacts. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the I'm a big fan of the personalization part. So like for example, if someone was trying to sell to you, you have a podcast, mm. right? People can listen to that and probably learn a lot about you honestly, like the stuff you care about, things you're interested in. And also it's kind of flattering, right? If somebody sends you a message is like, oh, I heard the on the Inside the Marketplace podcast, you mentioned totally. like you like conferences and this. And and by the way, we we have a conference and this is why like we think it's relevant. It would just catch your attention so much better than this, you know, generic spam email that comes across. And so to me, I'd rather send 10 very personalized emails in one day, let's say, versus a hundred, you know, just spam email, not spam, but like a 100 unpersonalized, just generic kind of emails. And and I think it's much more effective because you have to go back to what's kind of the end goal, right? What are you trying to do? And what you're trying to do is, first of all, you have to get and get the person's attention that you're trying to sell mm-hmm. to. But second, you also got to get that, figure out if it's the right person because it's hard from the outside to look at a large company. Like, I mean, I haven't looked at Lenovo's uh, employees on LinkedIn, but I'm sure there's, you know, a bunch of managers, a bunch of vice presidents, a bunch of, right? Like all these different titles. And it can be hard to figure out like, okay, if I'm selling this, you know, the service or the software, who should I even be talking to? Yeah. Whose problem am I solving inside the company? So some of it is, you also just got to figure that out through getting on the phone and to get on the phone, you got to kind of get their attention. So it's, you got to kind of figure out what the goal is. And then kind of beyond that, the goal is to to actually get them as a customer. And I think the session that you came to uh, the, the, the little webinar I was doing, that was one of the, the points I brought up that uh, people look at like getting a pilot, you know, pilot project as the end mm-hmm. goal. But the pilot project is not really the end goal. That's just, you know, another step towards making that that company your customer. But the pilot project by itself is not really helpful if it doesn't lead towards the, the the kind of customer relationship. And that's that's why I always advocate for setting expectations, right? Like what does success mean? If we're gonna do a pilot, let's decide like what's gonna make a success. Let's decide before the pilot starts what's successful and what's not. If we decide after, you can keep moving the goalposts, right? And it becomes an emotional decision and not, a, not an objective sort of metric driven thing. So yeah, I mean, it just kind of going back, you gotta think about who am I reaching out to what did this, what does this person care about and then the last part of it is just timing right and i know that sounds kind of cheesy or or uh, not a <laughs> not not the best answer but it's i'm sure you've felt this way as uh, you know as as a as an employee as well so certain times a year you don't care about certain things but if somebody messages you 2 months later you're it's top mm, of mind mm-hmm. right and uh it's some some of it's just timing some sometimes it's also as simple as as, as luck based as your boss told you about something in a meeting. You get back to your computer, and there's an email from a startup that solves that exact same thing as what your boss was just talking about. Right. It can just be as serendipitous as that. And so you kind of just got to, like, as a, if you're on the small company side, you have to just make, I mean, this is going to sound bad also, but make your own luck in some ways. Right. Just like by continuing being, you know, being not being annoying, but also being like persistent in the sense that make it easy for somebody to opt out. But keep providing value, however you can. And um, I, I know I've kind of been going on no, on this no, answer, but, this but it's is- as I said, it's something I'm uh, I'm passionate about on this one. I mean, another another little thing to throw in there is, let's say somebody's had a conversation with you, right? Let's say they're trying to sell to you directly, and you're not ready to buy for whatever reason. A lot of times, people just follow up with the most generic stuff, right? They're like, oh, just checking in. How you know? And, and it's just like that doesn't that doesn't help anybody. I learned this from somebody else, but the tactic of using like an uh, uh, article that you found or something interesting, you know, that that could actually provide value, get somebody's I mean, think about for yourself, if I'm trying to sell to you, and I send you, you know, an article that's relevant to your job, or I send you like, this new development in your industry that might be interesting, or this conference, I can get you a free ticket to Right, like, those are all ways to provide value before you're even Mm -hmm. my customer. Um, but that's going to get you kind of to at least open the email, pay attention. And and that's half the battle, right? As as you know, in the large company, because there's so much stuff that's just thrown at you yeah. all day.
0: So a- as we look at how to break down those walls between startups or smaller businesses and large organizations, one of the ways that traditionally has been done to do that is through conferences and different meetup events or whatever it may be, or larger meetup events, however you want to position it. This happens to be, oddly enough, one of my favorite chapters in your book. And the reason why is because I've been to so many different conferences across the world. And, um, you know, one of the biggest challenges that I've seen about it is number one, being torn about You know, because the way you put it in the book is conferences, hackathons, consultants. It's just like bears, lions. Oh, my. It just goes on and on. Yep. Right. (laughs) It can be overwhelming for large organizations to the point that. Now they start to preset their meetings before they get there, and you've almost taken the steam out of the 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 genuine meeting of new people at the conference, because. It's, it's all too much. Like when, um, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to forget this, but the big tech conference that comes to Las Vegas.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, CES. CES. God,
0: I don't know how I could forget that, but CES, you know, a lot of the team members pre plan those meetings. And so when you get there, I'm sure there's startups with cool widgets, cool ideas that you sort of miss out on because you can't just leave yourself open to everything. Otherwise, you'll be overwhelmed by the potential meetings that you could have. And frankly, you you almost have to pick precisely what conference you want to go to because there's five others in the same week. So I'm going to ask a very loaded question here. Yeah. Number one, both as a large business startup and smaller companies, how do you make the best of these conferences deciding which one works for you best? And number two, how do you leverage your time at a conference? So I found there's a lot of small talk. You know, one of the things that you put in here, which I thought was really, really good, you say successful companies have a halo effect on everyone affiliated with them. Meaning, you know, when you go to a company, if somebody or excuse me, to a conference and somebody just has Amazon on their name, that immediately added 50 cool points to them when they may haven't done shit at Amazon, they may be totally like, well, I don't want to say what the position is because I don't want to knock anyone. But, you know, so you're making it clear like, hey, you have to be really considerate and driven to what you're trying to accomplish, almost lead into what you were saying before about being focused about where you want to go with this. So tell me about this conference piece because I, I, I really do really love this chapter, oddly enough, out of all of them, although I think, the book is really well written again, but tell me your thoughts around this, about the meetings and how we established this and et cetera.
1: First of all, really happy you like this chapter. Like, you know, I was telling you a little earlier, it's like, you know, everybody focuses on the first two parts, but you know, I like, I like all of, of them. So yeah, no, to me, to me, this is uh this was very This was kind of, I wouldn't even call it like hard one, but it's something that I think a lot of people Mm. feel, but there's not too much information about it. So you're 100% right. Everybody's, you know, not everybody, but a lot of, especially in the the large businesses side, structure um, their time almost before Mm -hmm. they get to the conference. And then you could have just set up those meetings, you know, ahead of time. You didn't, or you don't even need to be at the conference, right? If if you're, everything's so structured. So to me, the 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 magic of these conferences is like the serendipity, right? Like you're walking at the show, you come across this cool thing and you're like, oh, you know, we should talk to them more and you meet the person. Like to me, that's where the magic is. I think for the other thing to really think about when you're looking at which conference to go to is a lot of times the speakers don't matter that much. And I know that's a weird thing to say. Like I think they they do. I don't want to say they don't matter at all, But it's not, they don't matter for their talks, right? Like, especially today, they've probably done a podcast appearance with talking about the exact same thing, maybe in deeper uh, format, right? Instead of 10 minutes on the stage, they're spending an hour on a podcast, right? And going really deep into something. They might have a YouTube video about that, right? They might have a blog post. Like, the information that they're sharing in the talk is not really unique. Uh, that's, That's not the unique part if you want to connect with that speaker that can be valuable
0: do you right when you go to a uh, conference you care less about the actual speaking that's happening you'll take in that later but you're more interested in the connection behind the connection is that right
1: yeah yeah like meeting the person right who's who's speaking yeah yep yeah yeah like um I think to me, that's the more valuable piece of the of the conference is the connections, not the Mm -hmm. talks themselves. And of course, you know, it's kind of weird, though, like the way when you when you are considering what conference to go to, you look at the agenda, you look at the talks, you look at all that, um, which is very important. Uh, Well, it's important when you're making the decision, but I don't think it's as important in terms of like the real value Mm -hmm. you get out of it. I think the other thing is just like leaving time for the serendipity to happen. Uh, you know, that I, I don't know if I'm, I'm conveying the thought properly, but I think, uh, and I've been in this position as well, where you go to a conference, your time is so structured, and you meet all these people who you were already connected to before, right? Like, maybe not connected to, you might not have spoken with them, but you were like, connected via email. And, and honestly, like, the, something I've been thinking about a lot lately has been like, where is sort of the value of in person mm. versus mm. remote? Right. And like, I think maybe I'd mentioned this to you, but something I've been thinking about is it's very easy to stay in touch with somebody you've already kind of built a connection with remotely. Right. Like I can do that via Zoom call. I can pick up the phone and call you. Right. We can have a chat like this. And it's pretty easy to do that remotely if we already have a relationship. Correct. What what's hard to do is build that relationship from scratch remotely. And so that's where I think the r- huge value to these conferences. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned to you that
0: people at you know my company were like, hey, should we be going remote? Everybody else is doing it. Google, Microsoft, all these companies are going remote. My SVP brings up a good point. He says, look, we are eating the fruits of established relationships right now. This is great that we're able to do this, but that's because priests I've been out to lunch with you and you know, such and such, I've been with you and we've spent time together and we've gone out for drinks. Right. Had we not done that, would this be as effective? Right. So I'm, I'm all about the remote lifestyle, right? I'm all about it, but I, I also believe in the connection You know, to have at conferences, and what it means to read each other's body language and see how genuine each other is. Because I typically, when I shake your hand, I can tell within seconds what I what I think I believe about you. You know, and that can be conveyed much different remotely. Not that it can't be, but it could. It you know, it could be seen different because our we're not reading each other's body language, and I you know I can look at something as small as how people swallow and how oh, yeah. their eyes oh. blink which i can't really see is deep where you can see if somebody's panting or breathing heavy they're trying to be cool on the outside but on the inside i can see all the <laughs> flutters that they have no
1: I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say that it's like i mean there's even all these like subconscious cues you'd probably pick up on that you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to point out but you would just feel you know yes. you feel like oh this person isn't honest or this person is very warm right which mm. might not convey itself on zoom but really they're a very nice warm person in person you know when you meet them face to face and mm. uh yeah it's you until they invent technology <laughs> to do that remotely you just can't do that via you know via video and and your point about like going out for drinks and all that that's spot on too and i think at conferences that's another big kind of value is you build this almost like bank of trust with the person right it's like It's like, I know you, right? Because I've met you in person. We've had lunch or we've, you know, had, even if it's just coffee, right? Just meeting somebody in person, there's a trust factor that you have, which you don't have and you can develop remotely. Like I haven't met you in person, but I feel like I understand you, but it's taken years of knowing you remotely, right? Of digitally. Right. So, so, so then I feel like I know you, but you can't build that. Very true. Overnight. Very true. Just through, you know, through remote, but you can in person, like you can meet somebody at a conference, grab a drink with them and then, you know, talk to them six months later and be like, oh, I, I, kn- I know you because we met at that one thing. And, you know, and we're, we, we got a drink and, you know, you have like a, I don't know how to describe it. There's probably like a scientific term for it or something, but it's like you have this feeling that, you know, the person, there's this trust that you can kind of call on.
0: So, that's, you know, this is this is really good, you know, when you dive into the psychology of relationships and how you work in businesses. and And it goes deeper because a lot of times when you're on LinkedIn, you know, people are judging you based on your title and your position. And, you know, when you're at conferences, there's a much deeper dive that you do very instantly with each other that's more meaningful and provides much more richer conversations. Than when you're away on remote so i think there's there you know look this this book does a really really good job of kind of addressing some of those very psychological processes that you go through both as within large companies and startup small businesses how you think about each other how do you bridge the divide possibly within the business and how do you create something much more meaningful? beyond the business even so that it can lend itself back to the business. I, you know, I think this is a really, really, really well-written book. I appreciate that. Um, But how, yeah, man, I, and I mean it wholeheartedly. How do you, how do you, after all you do here, consult, you're an author, you have so much going on. How do you, how do you unwind, man? How do you unpack and? I mean, how do you deal with,
1: anxiety and how do you manage all of this for yourself? Yeah. So, um, I think having some outlets is, is good. Um, I, I really like watching sports, right. It was one of the things we originally connected connected over, um, (laughs) you know, whether it's football, basketball, uh, tennis, um, you know, those are, those are kind of my, my, my favorite three, but you know, playing sports, exercising that all that stuff is, is, is really helpful for me. Personally, and then just kind of like from a philosophy standpoint, any of like, and and this is maybe not true for everybody, so I I hope people don't take this the wrong way, but any like professional related stresses to me are kind of so minor in the grand scheme of things, right? Mm -hmm. In the sense that there are way worse problems. I think Dame Lillard last year, I don't know the exact quote, but uh, when he made that shot, that that long three to end the series. uh, Mm -hmm. Is that when he waved goodbye? Yeah yeah, 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 Who was that against? I forget who he that was, was playing against. against
0: uh, for some reason, I wanted to say Houston with Russell Westbrook on the other it side. It might
1: have been, it might have, I forget who it was, but anyway, he made yeah. that shot. And I remember they asked him afterwards if he was nervous or if he was stressed, you know, before making that shot or if it was, uh, if he was anxious. And, uh, he said something like, uh, to the effect of, I mean, I don't know the exact quote, but it was to the effect of, no, this is, you know, this is just a game. Like, real you know stress is like if you're a, a single unemployed mother and you can't make rent mm. or you can't put food on the table right like these are real stresses so i just always try to bring it bring that back of course it doesn't always work but that's what i kind of try to bring you back to is like the grand scheme of things this is you know like i mean this is this is what i mean it's not true for everybody because some people they they absolutely are like you know kind of Fighting for their life, right? In terms of uh, in terms of professional, like they need the money to um, to pay their bills or to afford school or loans or, or mortgage, right? Like there's there's people with real, like actual real professional stresses. I mean, I just and this is like more of a guiding philosophy. I try to work on stuff I find fun. That's I mean, I think that makes everything a lot easier. You know, that's like the even the large companies I work with. Like I'm very lucky that. That I don't have any bad clients right now. I've had bad clients in the past. And, you know, you just have to kind of like a relationship. You just got to get out of bad relationships. Yeah. You, you got to fire them, man. Yeah. yeah. You got to, I mean, and that's, and that's the thing. I think a lot of, for me, it took a couple of years of, of doing consulting before I realized it's like, not all money is, uh, is good, good money, money. Right. Totally. Yeah. Because, because you got to sometimes like, I mean, there's some clients, you know, they'll suck everything they can out of you. Right. If they, if they can, and. And whether it's from an emotional perspective, or if it's from a time perspective, or, you know, whatever, it, there's some clients that are just not worth having. And so I've, mm. I've, I have gotten better, I would say, and definitely pickier with who I work with. Because you kind of have to, if you're working for yourself, you have to get good at saying no to money, which sounds silly, right? Like, you know, when I say that out <laughs> loud, but you you kind of have to, right? It's like, if you say yes to everything, like you, you're one, you're not gonna have any time, right? To when a, when a, a new opportunity comes along, mm-hmm. you're not gonna have any time. But also, not every opportunity is created equal. Like, there's one thing to have a, you know, let's say a ten thousand dollar a month client on retainer, that is a great client, and you know listens to what you what you recommend, and you know takes uh, your advice, and and is a few calls a month, and 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 you know you're delivering value on your own versus a sixty hour a month or sorry, 60 hour a week type of client where you're on the phone constantly dealing with a lot of uh, annoying people and they never listen to what you say, but then they blame you when things go wrong, right? Like there's a huge difference between those two. And so it's being, it's being able to say, and you don't always know uh, ahead of time. So it's being able to kind of figure it out um, as you go. And, 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 and I guess I, you know, over the years I've gotten a little bit better at, at one picking and kind of seeing ahead of time okay this person's gonna be a pain in the butt to work with like definitely don't want to kind of get too deep into a working relationship and then there's others where you know you don't know till after you get started so i've tried to now always because i have confidence i think in in the value i can deliver i always try to like set things up where let's do a trial Mm. right okay let's let's work together for a month and see how it goes on both sides and and people tend to like that too because they don't necessarily know how i work so you kind of give them an out right you say okay let's let's do this for a month or six weeks and, and or for this one specific objective if it goes well let's you know continue let's talk and see how uh how we can work you know together for the long term and if it doesn't go well you know we can we can kind of walk away and, and 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 there'll be no hard feelings so i've gotten better at that but yeah there's it can be a lot more stressful, uh, with bad clients. So I'm, I'm lucky in that regard that kind of, especially as I think about my clients right now and in over the past like year and a half, couple of years, it's, I haven't really had any of those like clients from hell that <laughs> if I think about that I have in the past, but I, you know, I've, I've, kind of gotten better at, at, uh, picking, I guess who I work with. No, I mean, you know, listen,
0: you could see it how you want, but sometimes setbacks are set up for a comeback. I mean, I've been in positions before where I have fired people um, for the exact reasons you've talked about. I'm talking about clients here uh, because they were either rude or demanding mm-hmm. with very little yep. return. And I, I don't mean financial return. I mean good energy return, if that makes sense. Yes. And I'm a hundred percent. Yeah. Yep. I'm not, this is how this is very good, Neil, because this is how I protect my energy, right? Is, is, I mean, I curate everything from my Instagram, from my Twitter. I'll go on. If people just start going too deep on stuff, I'll get rid of them on Twitter. I will do the same on Instagram and I blocked out my Instagram so I can only follow certain people so I can literally curate the energy that I want not to be in the bubble. You have to, but I'm No, no, you have to. I'm protecting. Otherwise, I, I can't be efficient or effective for my family, for me because I'm, I'm letting everything drown out my, my mission. I want to live. Right. And I, you know, I'm under 50, but I'm, you know, I'd like to make it a good amount of time. And there's no way you can do this by being tossed to and fro on clients and conversations. And this is why, you know, I kind of walked away from the hustle bullshit in the, you know, no, yeah. no hashtag no sleep team and all of that kind of stuff. Because I was like, this, this is fake. I mean, just, just go do you and and stop with all the extra BS.
1: Yeah, a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff is like done for showing it online. I mean, that's a whole. We got to do a follow up, man. There's so many cool conversations we could go off of this. There's, I mean, even like stuff with like diet. It's innovation theater. It's innovation theater. But in, exactly, but in a different way. It's yeah. like even with like nutrition and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like people love talking about what they eat on uh online, right? But no one's posting like their two AM pizza that they're having, <laughs> you know, like when the, right? And it's just like it's so much of it is just just for like showing off, oh. just for likes, you know, whatever. I mean, people say for the gram, right? Oh, it's oh, God. it's kind of so much stuff is just for that, and and I think that's part partially true for like the team no sleep type stuff, also, oh. right? It's post about it it's not really their lifestyle but people fall for the, fall into that thinking that's what other people are doing it's it's, yeah, it's, it's the it's most interesting
0: uncomfortable bs i mean listen in entrepreneur's life i mean if you think it's fabulous like that look i i get it some people are now at the point where they do it knowing that you know it's theater to some degree and they do it anyways just because People don't care, but again, it's that kind of stuff that I'm like, if I'm going to spend my time looking at something, reading something, I want it to matter. It's really why I don't read fiction books. I, cause I don't want to know at the end of it that I just read it and like none of this ever happened.
1: <laughs> yeah. I see what you're talking about.
0: Yeah. I, I, so I've never been in the Lord of the Rings. I've never, and people was like, Oh, he's he's so boring. I'm really not. I'm a, I'm a good time guy. I like to have a great time, go out, have a drink, cigars, enjoy my life. But I don't like it at the end when I read a book and I'm like, so none of this shit ever happened? Like, none of it? <laughs> <laughs> like, no, there is no little gawizmo or somebody from Lord of the Rings or so. I just can't do it. It's just... My mind won't let me get beyond that. So
1: what about like TV or movies?
0: Okay. So I suspend reality for certain movies if it's based in some level of nonfiction.
1: I see. Yeah. Okay. So if it's like Breaking Bad or something, all right, that's like yeah, at least based on re- some. Not I don't want to say reality, but it's like based on a real plausible situation. It's very plausible.
0: Or I just watched Martian with uh, Matt Damon. Right. That's very yeah yeah. It's it's totally plausible in its concept or whatever. But I'm not watching Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. Never seen it. Yeah. Harry Potter, <laughs> Lord of the Rings, or Anything else? My like, I watch Vikings on the History Channel, right? Because I know, like, man, these people were here. I, I'm just wired different, man. I just
1: can't. I I wish I could help. It. <laughs> no, no, no. That's I, no. You know what though? It's I see what you're like, where you're going with it, because it's um, it's exactly what you said. I think you use the the term like curating your energy, right? So you like you know where how you want to feel. And then you're, you're like working with the inputs to 100% to make it. So that's how you feel. Yeah. I've been using my energy. I've been using the, I've been using the mute button very liberally on, uh, on on Twitter. I've been muting so many people, not because I follow them because I don't follow them. Right. But if, if somebody retweets them, they show up in the feed. Totally. And, uh, yeah. And that helps a lot. I gotta be honest. Like your mood is so much better. You don't get, uh, you know, you kind of don't get like swept up in the daily outrage dude. uh, of whatever the outrage of the day is. That's (laughs) exactly
0: what I do. I mean, listen, I follow 120 something people and I bet half of those 120 something people are probably muted because of the other stuff that come in. I I intentionally only talk about sports and other stuff because, you know, like intimately, if you and I were chatting, I totally give you a rundown about how I feel about politics and We, You and I could get into all of that, but if people are just going to be, they just want to tell me F off because, you know, I believe one way you believe another, (laughs) then that's me going back to curating energy. And it's not that I'm afraid to have those debates. I love those debates, but it's not real when I'm arguing with Tony 1201 on Twitter. (laughs) It's like, again, I'm curating my energy again. I'm not going to argue with you because you're not real.
1: Nope. So no, you're 100% right. And it's also just like, I don't think Twitter is a great mechanism for changing minds, right? It's like not really for that. And that's, I think that's where I've come down to is like, if you get somebody, two people in a room, they probably actually have more in common. 100%. You know, that they can find, even if like on Twitter, they might post exactly opposite things. They probably have a lot of similar, like they, I don't want to say they have more in common than different. Maybe that's not true. Maybe that is true but they would definitely not yell at each other most likely the way they would immediately go after each other on Twitter and and people make all these assumptions too. Right. If you just see somebody's Twitter profile, even honestly, just from their profile picture, people will make all sorts of assumptions like, you know, because of their race they're with this political party or, uh, because of their, uh, you know, their job title, they believe in this thing. Right. And it's, it it, Twitter is just like, and I love Twitter, you know, I love Twitter. So it's, this isn't like, uh, uh, you know, a reason not to use Twitter is just to know that it's not for those types of intimate connections. Right. Like, you're not gonna you can't have that conversation on Twitter no, and, you gotta, and have it be productive. That's all. That that,
0: that That's kind of what I'm addressing is, like, you have to know you know, my wife and I always say know who you are and where you're at. Right? So, we're, we're trying to say like, after this interview and a couple hours later I'm gonna go out to a bar, have a couple of drinks but I'm never gonna walk around where like, I end up somewhere, like all over the place and people are like, damn priest, I respected you, man. And you just look like you were just totally blown out of your mind. You know, it's knowing who you are and where you're at in Twitter and all these other places are no different. Right. It's like, Hey Neil, if you and I were sitting down, we probably could have totally two different beliefs, but I'm sure we would come somewhere to like a, I totally hear you on the Trump part. Like I like the tariffs. I like this and I can hear why you think Biden is crazy. I seen it too with my own eyes. But no, we're just, in this environment, we're kind of, you know, we're just told to man our battle stations, whatever
1: that means. And I think the lockdowns have, have like, in I mean, this might be getting a little off track, but I think, like, that's kind of enhanced this sort of separation oh, no of people, doubt. right? Because no doubt. You know, because, like, now everybody's doing it from behind their computer, and that's, like, your social interaction. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, before it would be like, all right, I'm going out for drinks with somebody, or I'm eating lunch with somebody, and this topic comes up, or... I'm at, you know, watching a game at a bar and like talking to people there, right? Or, you know, there's like all these situations you're just meeting people. Yeah. And, and you, you know, you find the common ground. Whereas, yeah, now it's like, I think the, the term you just used is perfect. I haven't heard that before manning your battle station. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's not, that, that's not productive for anybody, but right. that is what's, what's happening, I think. Yeah. No, and then it makes it, then it makes it more productive. Like I've, um, so I've been looking at, kind of taking it to back to like the small business side, like I've been looking at um, like, you know, different side projects and stuff, right? So I've started following a bunch of people who, you know, they're like very active makers. It seems like, you know, they either all have like different side projects or uh, they're giving shout outs to other people's side projects, right? So you like learn about a lot of the cool stuff people are building and, you know, you learn about like these like no code tools and all this stuff, mm. but that's like purely curated, mm-hmm. right? It's like, I wanted to learn more about that stuff. Yep. So I found a few people to follow. And then it's, it's wild how that shapes your thoughts, mm. right? Because mm-hmm. now I see that content and then I start seeing like opportunities in different places and, and I'm like, oh, well, what if you could do that with that? Or like, oh, you can just use Airtable to do that. You don't need like a whole database or this other tool. Like, you know, you just start like thinking that way and it makes me really wonder like, I mean, one, why haven't I been doing this sooner? Because you can really shape your thoughts by, you know, what you're looking at and, and the content you consume. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, it's like if somebody doesn't curate what they look at, like what a mess their mind must be. Big time, right? Big like, time. I mean, just all the garbage out there. Like if you, I can't even imagine. I'd be in such a bad mood all the time. Yeah. Did you, you did you see uh, Social Dilemma on Netflix? Not yet. Not yet. I've seen uh, some people praising it, so so I I, I want to. I just it, haven't watched it yet. It, it's good. I mean, it it it's stuff that I
0: thought we already knew. About um, social media, the thing that, you know, I tweeted about this that seemed briefly disingenuous to me. I mean, I'm not going to knock it, but, you know, when I read former next to your title, like former president of Pinterest, it's kind of like, dude, I mean, I can appreciate you coming out and saying all of this. But I would have really loved if you were in Pinterest, knowing what effect you were having on people and then making the change there. There's a guy that um, his name is Tristan, who actually sent out like this um, memo. He worked at Google and he's the one largely behind this. um, Doc, and he tried to change the inside of Google, right? Hmm and um, try to change the mindset and saying, hey, we should approach this a little different. This is scummy what we're doing, you know, in terms of how we're approaching people. Listen, I'm a marketer online at that, so I can understand how this this rabbit hole opens up really huge and and people just, you kind of almost accidentally walk down it because there's, you know, you start collecting data and you start getting things about people, create clusters and shoppers start looking the same and Adobe creates tools around it. You can't help it in so many ways to start doing it. But you know, I thought we knew this. I thought we'd given up the idea (laughs) that, you know, privacy and all of these other points were were at a loss a long time ago. Like somebody told me I'm getting off the grid. I said, dude, it's too late. You're like 50. I mean, yeah. The kids coming up now, they have pictures. When you go on Instagram, you put your baby pictures up, and now they're 15, 16. They have facial recognition from how they aged as a child to now yeah um yeah it's over yeah that's they, a great point they got you it's you're you're in the, there the toothpaste the toothpaste is out of the tube yeah it's, Can't get it's, it back it's in totally there. out yeah. so now how do you at least curate or use it around you is the question and that's kind of what we're yeah, use
1: it as a tool for. there you go use it as a tool for your own benefit which is i mean uh, you can everybody can be cynical about it easily can be cynical about it and probably for good reason. But at the end of the day, these things are all tools to uh, totally to help you. I totally. mean, it's the same thing with email. Like I've been trying to get better with that as well, where it's like, exactly, I think you said you're aggressively unsubscribing. Very stuff. aggressive. Sa- same thing. It's like, it's like, yeah, if it's not adding value and I, I feel like, oh, I have all these emails sitting in my inbox, like who's, ultimately whose fault is that? That's mine, right? Yeah. I don't have to subscribe uh to these things i mean of course if it's your job it's a little different but if it's like your personal email that you're subscribed to things that are not really helping you in any way then i mean who can you blame i'm I'm aggressive
0: (laughs) about yeah unsubscribing if people don't add value and they're like hey priest just circling back around wanted to see what you thought about the thread below i'm like you know no or democrat or republicans text me on my um Phone and I <laughs> yeah, stop and, from that. Yeah, to stop yep. at all times. Stop, stop it from both sides. I don't want to hear it. My my mind. Yep. I'll make my own decision. So just yeah, curating the life, man. So look, uh Neil. If people want to buy the book, they want to check out your website. They want to hear more from you about you. Um, where can they go to do that, man? Help them. Um,
1: dig through the Trevor. Yeah, definitely. So. Yep. So for sure. So the so the the book is available pretty much any any bookstore. I mean, Amazon is the most popular, but they got the Kindle version, Audible version, uh, hardcover. So you can get on Amazon, or you can get Barnes and Noble, different places. But um, my website is neilsony So pretty pretty simple. I I haven't been writing there as often as uh, I guess I would like, but I, there are a lot of posts on there. If you're interested in like innovation or uh, selling or working with large companies, um, actually a lot of the So the book is not based on any particular blog posts, but the writing the blog posts helped me realize that there is enough content for a book, right? So there's I was writing about this stuff even before the book came out. And you can go on the website and see stuff there. I also recently launched uh, an email list called openinnovationleads.com. And uh, that's just a twice-per-month email. Um, a lot of companies, a lot of large companies, increasingly, especially I would say more so since COVID uh, has kind of put a, a halt on conferences. They've been putting out these like innovation challenges uh, where they'll say, "Okay, we're looking for a solution to this, or uh, we need help with this," and they're assigning a budget to that, which they make public. They say, "Okay, we have you know five hundred thousand dollars available for this solution," and they they're inviting startups or or honestly anybody, whether you're an individual or an inventor or uh, just a, somebody. You know, who's working somewhere else, but you know, looking for a side hustle. This, like, they they're they're open to submissions from anybody. The problem is, these large companies they don't know how to reach the right people, so mm. um, they'll post it on their social media, but no one's following Pringles <laughs> to look at their innovation challenges. You know, <laughs> uh, that's not why you follow their brand page. So they're they're often not getting in front of the right people. So that's what this email list is for. Is if if you know if you're a maker, an inventor, uh, somebody who. And not all of them are technical. Not all of them are like, oh, you need a chemistry background. Some of them might be, might be uh, more tech, like social social media related. They might be more software related, hardware. I mean, there's all sorts of challenges out there um, that they're posting about. So if you're one of those, you know, you view yourself as that type of person, you can subscribe to the list. It's free. And uh, you'll get, I think the, there's an email going out uh, in a couple of days that has like 15 different challenges from companies. So it's there's a lot of them out there. They're just very, I would say, under the radar right now. And um, I launched this list. I was already doing it. I was sending these, you know, these opportunities to people uh, in my network who I thought it was relevant to. So then I thought, okay, I'll just put them out in a in an email list. And uh, so far, there was, I mean, it was two weeks ago I launched it, but uh, the response has been pretty solid. And uh, yeah, we'll see if you know, kind of how it how it goes from here. But it. So far, it's just been fun to do and see all the different uh, opportunities that are out there. Yeah, so you I'm can gonna, check that out too. Yep,
0: yep. I already signed up right now. once you were talking through it?
1: Yeah, and I'm. Uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of uh, the, the the main thing. And you can reach me pretty easily. I mean, uh, we've been talking about Twitter here. My DMs are open. People can message me there. Uh, my email is posted on my website, so I'm I'm pretty accessible. Uh, if somebody wants to get in touch, if they you know have questions, if they you know have something that I said in the you know in the interview that they want to discuss further, um, pretty easy to reach. Cool. Neil,
0: you've been amazing, man. Thank you for, uh, spending time with me. I mean, this chat has been really, really good for me. I love, uh, I love every time we kind of get together and just all of a sudden we just throw up on each other, different stuff. So this is really good. Oh yeah. We got to do this in person one day. Uh, We will will be like, that's a guarantee. Yeah. This is going to be fun. That's a guarantee. (laughs) Thanks again, man. Appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Hey guys, thank you for listening in to another episode. Hopefully you can leave a comment for us, feedback. I know we don't ask often. I need to ask a lot more, but I would appreciate it if you go on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, wherever you listen to our podcast episodes, leave some feedback. Let us know what you think. Email me at priest, P-R-I-E-S-T at insidethemarketplace.com or follow me at priest willis on Twitter. And just let me know what you thought of the episode. I really want to look forward to our listening audience connect with me anytime. Love connecting with you guys. Love hearing your feedback. Thank you for all of those that have given us feedback in the past. We certainly appreciate it. Hopefully you see that it's been moving into a new direction, different direction, but until a new episode next Sunday, we'll talk to you soon.